Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. So currently we're studying the New Testament book, which is known as the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is the last book in the Bible. And its central focus is Jesus Christ. The focus on him, though, is specific to his second advent, wherein he comes to this earth as a conquering king, as opposed to his first advent that we'll be celebrating here in about a month, where he came as the suffering servant for salvation from sin's curse. The book of Revelation is really kind of divided into three different parts, and those parts are given to us in chapter 1, verse 19. First, there are the things that you have seen, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, where the apostle John had a vision of the risen, glorified Christ, and Jesus introduced him to himself, uh, introduced himself to John as the risen Christ. And then there are the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, which are letters that Jesus himself dictates to John. And then John sends to seven churches that were located in Asia Minor. And in those letters, Jesus deals with some current issues that are going on in those churches. And then finally, the last part of Revelation uh, is titled, Things That Take Place After This. And that encompasses chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 22. And in these chapters, we will be looking at events that are still future for us. Uh, Three of those, at least, I'll divide it this way, as the tribulation, the final judgment of humanity and the spiritual realm, and the new heaven and the new earth. Now, with that said, we are currently in that middle section. We are looking at the things that are. Not the things that are today in 2023, but as they were in A.D. 95-96 when John actually wrote uh, these chapters. And so, we're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. If you brought a Bible, please turn there. The scriptures will also be on the screen if you don't have one, so you'll be able to follow along with us. These verses record uh, Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia. And as we do each week, let's take just a moment to kind of get a little context about this church and the city and region in which they uh, were. So the city was established, Philadelphia was, uh, between uh, 159 and 138 B.C., by the Pergamian king Attalus II, whose nickname was Philadelphia. That's a picture of his, um, his statue. Philadelphia meant brother lover, and he was given that title or that word as a nickname uh, because of his uh, great love and devotion for his brother. And so ultimately the city that he established became known as Philadelphia. Italus uh, established the city to be a mission for disseminating Greco-Asiatic culture and language in the eastern part of Lydia and Phrygia, and Phrygia regions, uh, which his efforts were very successful in a very short amount of time. They completely changed the language and the culture of that region. 
Today, Philadelphia is known as Al-Shahir and is located about 28 miles southeast of Sardis in a region that is very prone to earthquakes. In AD 17, which would have been during the lifetime of Christ here on earth, there was an earthquake that destroyed Philadelphia, destroyed Sardis, destroyed 10 other cities that were nearby. And the Roman emperor Tiberius came to their aid and he funded the rebuilding of the city. In gratitude, they changed the name of the city to Neo-Caesarea, which means New Caesar. Like the other cities that we have studied as we've gone through those uh, particular letters, uh, Philadelphia was in the firm grip of pagan cult worship. And they had many different temples and many different false gods that they worshipped, but the primary or chief religion was one focused on uh, the god Dionysius. And so that's just a very quick and brief context in which the church existed. They did very well in that context. In fact, this church and its uh, people that it won to Christ over the centuries actually lasted until the late 20th, I mean, 12th century uh, when the city and the region was under Muslim control. So uh, they had a long and prosperous ministry there. Now you've been setting for a while. So I'm going to give you an opportunity while we read the scripture to stand up. So why don't you go ahead and just stand up. That way the blood gets flowing. My sermons are usually not 15 minutes long. So you're going to need that a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to be able to relax up here today because Tracy told me it wasn't a problem if I went past our time. So you can blame her. All right. She said it was okay. All right. Let's read the scripture. Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews who are not But lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we rejoice today in your blessings. And these individuals who have come to faith, who have given testimony of that faith through baptism, and the relationships that you are bringing together among, amongst the generations, we, we praise you for that. We praise you for the way that you provide for this ministry, uh, and you have done so faithfully over many, many, many years. We, we thank you for that, and we thank you for the heart that the people here have to minister to others 
And uh, Lord, just for uh, these shoe boxes that will be going out, we, we thank you for their efforts and what you will do with them when they arrive at their destination. Now, Father, as we uh, worship through the word, um, I'm praying that you will help me to communicate well. I pray that you'll help each one of us to receive what we need to hear and what we need to act on today. And we will give you the praise and the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. So keeping with the established pattern of introducing himself with one of the several points that he used to introduce himself to John in chapter 1, we find Jesus introducing himself to the church in Philadelphia through this letter. But Jesus deviates a little bit from what he had said to John when he was introducing himself in that way. We find here in verse 7 that this identification of Jesus to the church can be broken down into three parts. The first part is where Jesus introduces himself to the church as the Holy One, as the True One. You know, throughout the Old Testament scripture, Yahweh, who is God the Father, is consistently identified as the Holy One. The prophet Isaiah, recounting his heavenly vision, says that he saw seraphim, which is a class of angels that were above the throne of God, and they were consistently saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The word holy, if you have your note guide, this is a time to pull it out and begin to fill in some of those blanks. The word holy means to be utterly separated from all that is sin and then to be separated unto all that is righteous. In making that statement, Jesus is claiming divinity. He is claiming that he is the embodiment of the holiness of God. And we find there in verse 7 that he also claimed to be the embodiment of truth, which again is an exclusive attribute of God. And as we go through the book of Revelation, we will find that this attribute of truth relating to God and to relating to Christ is, is mentioned five separate times. And here in verse 7 of chapter 3, Jesus claims this attribute for himself. So he begins his introduction to the church there in Philadelphia by saying, I am the Holy One. I am the True One. From there, Jesus introduces himself by saying, I possess the key of David. Now, the word key is symbolic there of authority, of control. In chapter 1, verse 18, he introduced himself to John as the one who has the keys of death and Hades. What was he saying? He was saying, I possess the authority and the control over death and over Hades. Now, introducing himself to this church in Philadelphia, he says, I possess the key of David. What does he mean by that? Well, King David represents uh, rulership of a kingdom. And we know from Scripture that the Messianic line went right through the lineage of David. And so by making this statement, Jesus is claiming Messiahship. I am that Messiah. And as the Messiah, 
He holds the key to the kingdom of God, which signifies that he alone holds the authority regarding who can enter that kingdom and who cannot. So the question would be, who can enter the kingdom of God? And how is that done? Well, I want to share a couple of scriptures with you that will clearly lay out the answer to that question. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 7 and 9, Jesus said this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. I am the door of the sheep. In verse 9, he says again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Very clearly, Jesus is claiming here, I am the door. I am the way into the kingdom of God. All right? If we go down to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So in that first passage, he claims to be the door. In the second passage, he claims to be the only door. There is no other way to approach God the Father than through me. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we find the Apostle Peter speaking of Jesus, and he says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Truth point number one today kind of brings all of this then to a summary. Jesus is the ultimate king prophesied in Scripture who through his death for sin and resurrection to new life holds the key to the kingdom of God. He is the one. He is the only one. Part two of truth point number one then goes on to say, Jesus then is the exclusive authority over the kingdom. Who enters it? And he alone is the only way into the kingdom of God. So just very plainly and clearly, we find that he controls who enters it and all who come through him can enter it. But if they try to go through any other means, then they will be excluded. The third way that Jesus introduces himself to the church in Philadelphia is as the one who opens what no one can shut and shuts what no one can open. In other words, what he is saying there is, I am omnipotent. Omnipotent means all power. And what Jesus is claiming here is that whatever he purposes to do, he can do it. Now, you and I, we can purpose to do some things, but I'll tell you, in my 63 years of living, I've purposed to do a lot of things I wasn't able to accomplish. How about you? But every single thing that he purposes to do, he has the power to do it. And beyond that, there is no other power in heaven or on earth that can hold him back when he decides to do something or can change what he has determined to do. He is the embodiment of all power. We say, well, how, why is that? How, how, how is that? Truth point number two tells us that Jesus is co-equal with God the Father and the Spirit. And I just want to stop there for a second to make sure we're clear on something. This is the Trinity. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you heard us when we were baptizing. I baptize you, my brother, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some people think, well, that there's a hierarchy here. There's God the Father, and then there's God the Son, and then there's God the Holy Spirit, and one is greater than the other, but that's not what Scripture teaches. The Trinity, although three separate distinct persons, the Scripture declares one person, one God, and that's hard to grasp. We just kind of have to receive that by faith. But what that tells us is that the way it works, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal. And Jesus, being God, is all-powerful, and so he can do what he purposes to do. And we go on to understand that, again, he is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies that we find in Scripture. He is the exclusive king, and he is the point of entry to the kingdom of God. And so in verse 7, we discover Christ introducing himself to the church in Philadelphia. As we turn to verse 8, we go to the, I'm going to take you to the last part of verse 8, 8b. And here we begin to see his commendation, his praise for this church. Now the church in Philadelphia holds the blessed position of being one of only two of the seven churches to receive no criticism whatsoever from the Lord, only commendation. And Jesus begins his commendation to this church, uh, acknowledging and recognizing that they are not a large church. They are not necessarily one humanly that is, has great influence or power. He, he says of them, you have little power. And there's been scholars and, and, and Bible commentators in the past who have taken that to be a negative statement, but it's not a negative statement. It is simply a statement of what is true. He says, you are a group of little power. But he goes on to say, yet despite your little power, you've been faithful. You've been faithful. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. That's such an important aspect, would to God, that all churches could be that way. And that's why I'm going to bring back a truth point that I shared a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the church in Thyatira. Truth point number three, Jesus, when it comes to his church, does not demand success. But he does demand faithfulness. He does demand faithfulness. I want you to think about it, church. What difference does it make if a church is successful according to how mankind registers and, and, and categorizes success? What, what difference does it make if a church is successful that way? But in order to be successful that way, it compromises the word of God and it compromises its exclusive association with Jesus to get there. You know, unfortunately, we do live in a time where there are many churches who once were faithful, who were faithful to the word, and they were faithful to their identification with Christ. And today, they are walking away from that. Why? Because they want to have a big crowd. They want to have a bigger building. They want to have more success. Well, they're not having success if they're walking away from the word and they're walking away from, from Jesus. And it is my prayer, and I know it's the prayer of our leadership here and, and many of, probably all, of the saints who are part of this church that TMC would always remain faithful to the word and faithful to its identification with Christ. 
We come now to the first part of verse 8, and then verse 9 through 11, the first phrase. And here in this part of the scripture, we find four promises that Jesus makes to this faithful church. And I want us to see them here today. Promise number one, we find there in verse 8, the very first phrase where he says to them, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. What is this open door that Jesus is referring to? Well, the apostle Paul used this almost exact terminology to describe an open door, a a wide door that Christ had opened for him. It was a door for effective work, effective ministry. He made that statement in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. And when he made that statement, he was referring to an open door for his missionary work. We know that, that Paul traveled throughout the known region of that time. And he was very successful in bringing the gospel to people who had never heard it. City after city after city. In fact, uh, Philadelphia, no doubt, became Christianized and had a church there because of the efforts that Paul had that planted Ephesus, and then they went beyond where he was at. And so we understand that the open door then is an open door for ministry work. But there's something that he says there in 1 Corinthians 16, 9 that I want to uh, touch on. Not only did Christ open a door for effective work and ministry for Paul. But Paul then went on to say, and there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. Truth point number four today. When there is an open door for the gospel, there will always be adversaries that seek to close the door. Any church that thinks that it's going to just sail down the highway If it's standing for the word, if it's standing for Christ, if it is proclaiming the gospel, if it thinks there's going to be no opposition, then they are just deceived beyond measure. There's going to be opposition. The devil doesn't want the gospel put out there clearly and plainly. He's not looking for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. He will do anything and everything he can do to keep children and teenagers and 20 and 30 and 40-year-olds and 70-year-olds from coming to Christ. But the good news is the gospel is more powerful than he. And even though we have adversaries, nonetheless, the Holy Spirit can uh, bring to bear in the hearts of people uh, the saving work of the gospel. Uh, this, This church in Philadelphia, it was known as the keeper of the gateway as it relates to the regions beyond their physical location. And of course, this then would have given that church opportunity uh, to use their position for the sake of the gospel. And so for them at that time, uh, Jesus assures this church that has little power that he has opened the door for ministry. He's not expecting them to open it. He's going to open it for them. And he's assuring them that it will remain open until he chooses to close it. And he will keep it open for the furtherance of the gospel, for his glory and the benefit of those that it will reach. And so that first promise, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. The second promise we find there in verse 9. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan 
Come and bow down before your feet and learn that I have loved you. Now, what in the world is he meaning when he says something about a synagogue of Satan? Well, actually what he's making reference to are the Jews of that community who were faithful to Judaism and thus they believed they were being faithful to Yahweh. But actually what Jesus is saying is they're not being faithful to Yahweh. In fact, they are actually following Satan. Why? Because they have rejected him. They have rejected Jesus who is Yahweh's Messiah. And so if they reject Jesus, then they are enemies of his gospel. Now, despite that, truth point number five, history records that some who oppose Jesus the most end up coming to faith in him through their opposition. It's an amazing reality, but it happens. It teaches us then that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace, not even those who vehemently oppose him. On your note guide, I put down there, see Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. That is the story of the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament, the one who planted churches all over the known region at the time. His name wasn't always Paul. It used to be Saul. And Saul was a Jew, is a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a high-ranking theologian. And he hated Jesus, and he hated the Christian church. And he was set, dead set on doing everything he could to persecute the church, to put Christians in prison, and even to put some of them to death. And he was on his way to do that very thing when Christ interrupted him one day on the road to Damascus and revealed himself to Saul. And when he came face to face with, the, with, with Christ, uh, he then couldn't do nothing but to repent and to believe and in time, he became known as Paul, the apostle, and he is probably uh, the premier Christian that has ever lived. Now, this is a promise that Jesus makes to the uh, Philadelphian church. He's telling them that despite this opposition of these people against what you're doing, some of them, some of them who are standing so vehemently against you and against the gospel you proclaim, they're eventually going to kneel at your feet. Meaning what? Meaning that they're going to kneel before the gospel that they are proclaiming. And when they do, then they will openly acknowledge that these Christians are not hated by Yahweh at all, but are loved because of the mercy and the grace of Christ. Promise number three we find there in verse 10 where Jesus says to them, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now I'm going to ask you to listen to this and, and, and mark this down. Throughout the book of Revelation, the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is a reference. It's used nine separate times. To those who are unsaved, to those who remain on the earth after the rapture of the church, and they remain upon the earth to face the wrath of God for their rejection of Christ Jesus. Now that's a scary thought. And there's a lot of different beliefs and opinions about the rapture, even if there is one, and, and all of that. And we'll get into that 
in time. But today, I want to share this truth point with you, truth point number six, that God's wrath poured out during the tribulation, and we're going to see all that in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19, that his wrath poured out during the tribulation is reserved for those who rejected Jesus as Messiah, not those who embraced him as Messiah. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9 will be one of the texts that we'll look at as we examine that whole concept there. But as it relates to the church there in Philadelphia, uh, since the tribulation had not yet occurred, it is clear that they were never in jeopardy of ever having to face that hour of tribulation. And that church died out long ago. But the promise was not wasted. It continues on for the body of Christ because the body of Christ continues to exist. His church continues today and his church will continue until Christ, who is the head of the church, comes to deliver his church from that hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. You know what? We turn our TVs on right now and we see what's going on around the world. And um, if we're normal, I think we, we, we shake our heads. We wonder, where is this going? This can't be good. Things are going to get worse and worse. And I'm guaranteeing you they will. There is an hour of trying. There is a time of tribulation that is coming. And until it comes fully, the church needs to be active sharing the gospel, inviting people to come to Christ. Because again, that hour of tribulation is not for the church. It is not for the saved, but for those who have rejected Jesus as their Savior and Lord. We don't want to be in that position of rejection. The final promise he makes here, we find at the very beginning of verse 11, where he simply says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. He said that to the other churches as well, but there's a difference between what he said to them and what he's saying here to the church in Philadelphia. When he said to the other churches, I'm coming soon, he was making reference to coming in judgment upon them if they did not repent. Those of you who have been hearing these sermons, remember at the end of each one of these letters, Jesus would say something about coming in judgment if you don't repent. So that was a, a promise of a near coming in the sense of coming in judgment. But that's not what he's talking about here because he has no criticism for this church. There is no judgment for this church. The context demands that we see this statement of I am coming soon to mean I am coming soon in that ultimate sense to remove my church out of this world uh, from the hour of trial that is to come. Now some would say, well, he said he was coming soon. It's been 2,000 years. How do you explain that, Pastor? Well, again, the word soon there is not meant to convey a specific period of time like tomorrow or next month or next year. The word actually communicates the idea of imminency, that it could happen at any time, and that we need to be watchful and we need to be ready. And so that is what he's communicating there to the church in Philadelphia. Now, as we have said, there is no criticism for this church in Philadelphia. So Jesus does not criticize them. He simply offers some encouragement. In light of his promise to return for his church, he encourages them until he does to hold fast what they have so that no one may steal or seize their crown. 
Uh, in this particular mention of crown, there's no other designation given to it. So we have to kind of go back and see, well, what designation did, did he give to this word crown in these letters? And we go back to the letter to, to Smyrna and we find Jesus mentioning the crown of life. To the church in Smyrna, he said to those who are faithful unto death. In other words, those who persevere in their faith. The promise is, I will give you the crown of life, which represents eternal life, which is something that every Christ follower has. I have eternal life because my faith is in Christ. If your faith is in Christ, you have eternal life. You have the crown of life. And as you hold that faith and as you persevere until death, then you will receive that crown from him, something that is already yours by faith. The promise then remains the same for the Philadelphian church. True faith that perseveres, and true faith always does, results in the crown of life, results in eternal life. As we come to verse 12, we see Jesus talking about a reward, or actually rewards that he is going to give to those who persevere in their faith and enter into his presence. There are four rewards mentioned here. Let's take a look at them. Number one, he says in verse 12, I will make him or I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. What does he mean by that? Well, those of you who watched the Midweek Connection will recall that this past Wednesday, I did a, a talk on discerning between what is literal and what is figurative in Scripture. And this statement that he's making about making you a pillar in the temple of my God is a statement that is figurative. It is a figure of speech. But remember what I told you on Wednesday, that figurative language is there to teach us and to forecast something that is literal. And so we understand then this being figurative language that Jesus is not saying I'm going to turn you into a marble pillar like may exist in the temple of God. It's a figurative statement, and it's meant to communicate permanency. As I told you, Philadelphia was in an earthquake zone. And among the things that survived those earthquakes were the pillars that held up the temple of the pagan gods. Those pillars were able to withstand. And that's really what we're supposed to be taking from this comment. Jesus is saying that he will ensure that his faithful ones will withstand and that they will have an eternal place of honor in the temple of God. And so the promise that he makes is for those who uh, are faithful, for those who walk with him, he is going to ensure that their place in heaven with him, it withstands. It will be there eternally. Number two, he says, I will write, write on him or on you the name of my God. The term my God there is a reference to God the Father. And what Jesus is communicating is that his children will bear his name. If you are a Christian, you already bear his name. And that name is a point of identity for you. But it is also a point of ownership for the Father. 
And so Jesus is simply communicating there the idea of their identity with the Father and his ownership of them. I will write, I will write on him the name of my God. The third promise, he says, and the name, I will write also the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Again, we have another point of identity. And this point of identity has to do with our citizenship. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of God, of which the new, Revela- uh, the new Jerusalem, which is mentioned in Revelation chapter 21, is the capital of God's kingdom. And finally, he says... I will write my own new name on you. Jesus is talking here about a new name that his followers will come to know and understand when we come into his eternal presence. The scripture does not give us any revelation about what that name is or even about the new name he's going to give us, which is mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. So we're going to have to be patient. We're going to have to wait until that time comes. But there is something that is very significant that we can know now. And this is very important, so follow it with me, please. Truth point number seven. The significance of the pillar that he has spoken about and the new names is that our identity will be defined by our relationship with God. Our citizenship will be tied to God's place of rule, the new Jerusalem, and our eternal security will be like the immovable pillars that adorn the temple of God. One more time. The significance of the pillar and the new names is that our identity will be defined by our relationship with God. Our citizenship will be tied to God's place of rule, the new Jerusalem, and our eternal security will be like the immovable pillars that adorn the temple of God. And Jesus closes the letter saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as I begin to wrap this up, I want to address those of you in the room, those of you who are online, those of you who are in the overflow area, who are Christians. The truths that have been shared in this letter, if you understand them, they should prompt you to erupt, literally, in a praise, a chorus of praise and adoration for a God who loves you, for a Savior who paid sin's debt and made eternal life possible. For a Holy Spirit that indwells, empowers, and keeps you until the day that you step fully into that kingdom where Christ is king. My question to all of you Christians in the room, have you thanked him lately? Have you acknowledged what he has done for you? Have you given him praise? Have you worshipped him? You say, well, yes, pastor, I showed up here today and I sang a few songs. Well, that's great. But have you privately taken time to commune with him? You know, we're in that Thanksgiving season and there's not a better time than today to recount those blessings that have been given to you because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you haven't taken the time, why not start today? Why not make a list 
And then take the time to just go over that and then worship the Lord for all that he has done for you. Today, if you do not consider yourself a follower of Christ, then I want to ask you this question. What is your identity in? What is your identity in? Where is your eternal citizenship? Is your eternity secure with God? You know, Jesus gave his life on the cross to pay sin's debt. He rose from the dead to bring eternal life to those who would turn from sin and turn from self to embrace him as Savior and Lord. And I ask you, where do you stand relating to that reality today? The offer of his salvation is here. Jesus can transform your life just as he's transforming those seven individuals who gave testimony today of their faith in Christ, just as he's transforming hundreds of people who are in this room, hundreds of people who will see this online. He can touch your life. He can forgive your sin. He can give you a new identity, a new citizenship, and an eternity with him. Father, I thank you for this opportunity today to gather and to be with you. I thank you for all that we are celebrating today. And truth be told, we're only celebrating openly just a few, just a few of the many, many blessings that you have poured out upon us. Lord, I want to thank you, and I want to praise you for saving my soul. I want to thank you for holding me secure in your love these 47 or 48 years Lord, I want to thank you for giving me the privilege and the pleasure of being able to serve this body of people. And I want to give you praise for them, for what you're doing in their lives, for what you're doing in their families, and how you're transforming them. Now, Father, I lift up those who are watching online or who are here in this auditorium who do not know Christ as their Savior. I pray that you would touch them. I pray that you would help them to have their eyes open, to see their need, and that you would help them to come to fully understand that Jesus is the answer to that need. May they come to faith in you even today. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for that in Christ's name. Amen. Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ.